Studios uh, theme park. If any of you have ever done uh, scavenger hunts like this, maybe at the MOA or, or maybe just around town, but essentially if you've never done it before, here's what happens. There's a bunch of clues, like a list of 10 clues that identify certain places in the theme park or in town that you need to go and find. And then the way that you prove that you found it was to take a picture of you or your group by that, that area or by that um, answer to the clue. So if you've ever done it, it tends to be a lot of fun. And um, this particular scavenger hunt seemed to be, should have been, a lot of fun for all the teens that were involved. Well, my family and I were, obviously, the entire family was down there for the rally. And so we went to Universal Studios that same day as the scavenger hunt was going on. I decided not to participate because I almost always win, and I wanted the teens to have fun, so I just kind of took that out of the equation right away. Um, honestly, the real reason we didn't participate is because our family just wanted to go at a slower pace that day as opposed to running around for the, the scavenger hunt. And just a little bit of uh, travel advice. Um, Universal Studios theme park, actually, if you have older kids especially, is actually, our kids actually like it more than Disney. So just an awesome place. And we really enjoyed it. And so at the end of the day, as we ran into some of the teens who were on the scavenger hunt, I thought absolutely that their response would be that they enjoyed it too. So I asked them, hey, how did the day go? And they're like, it's all right. It's okay. I'm like, really? It's j- it was just Okay. I mean, the the new Harry Potter section of the theme park was just okay, and the graphics at the Transformers ride was just okay, and the Incredible Hulk roller coaster that I didn't go on, by the way, because I was scared, was just okay? Just okay? What's up with that? I said, it's the scavenger hunt we're on. We spent all day trying to find all these clues and all the things you just described. We've been able to go on about half of them because all of our focus and concentration has been on this scavenger hunt. And as I I thought about their response, I, I recognized something that's true about all of life. You, two people can be in the very same place or take the very same journey and have very different reaction based on what they're concentrating on. Or to say it in a different way, it's our first fill-in for today. And if you're brand new, there's an insert in the middle portion of your service folder that can be helpful in following along if you'd like. There's a journey beneath life's journey. There's a journey beneath life's journey. So there's the, the journey that we take by foot or by car. There's life's journey that you see where it ends up, I went to high school, and then I went to college, and then I got a job, and then we moved here, and then I got married, and there's the stuff that you can see. But beyond that, there's a journey that people can't see. There's a journey for every single one of us beneath life's journey. And you know what that has more to do with? It doesn't have as much to do with your feet as it does with your heart. How do you determine what the journey beneath the journey is? Well, what did you think about when you woke up this morning? Or what are you pursuing right now? What does most of your thought go to when you have time to daydream? All of those things and more tend to help us figure out whether we like the answer or not, what the journey beneath life's journey for us really is.
And this becomes really important in the life of Abraham. The, the subtitle of the series is A Faith Journey. And, and we're going to see today how Abraham's journey beneath his journey to Canaan set the stage for when decision-making time came to make a good decision instead of a bad one. And so we're going to talk about decision-making today. If you ever run into a situation where you weren't sure what to do, like all of us, right? I mean, very rarely in life does God come to you like he did to Abraham and say, go to Canaan. Like, there's not a lot to sort of, you know, figure out. Like, he didn't leave a lot gray for Abraham. It's just, (laughs) go. For you and I, most of the time, things are not that plain. Like, I never had a passage that said, Ben, of all the things you could do with your life, I want you to be a pastor. Go to seminary, Ben. There was no voice from heaven, no passage that I turned to. Or of all the places that we could buy to live in Lakeville and the surrounding area, no vision from God that said, hey, go to Fallbrook Drive. There you will find the place you are to stay. Do not leave Fallbrook Drive. No, it doesn't happen for us like that, whether it be with jobs or relationships or you know, where to live, all that kind of stuff. So what do we do when God's direction isn't as clear as go to Canaan? Find a quarter and flip a coin, right, Mark? Just see what heads or tails, right? No, there's much better way. And by the time we're done in just a few minutes, I hope that, first of all, I'm not going to be able to give you clarity on every single decision, but I will be able, I hope, God will, give you a filter through which to better eliminate some options and to focus on the right things when you make your decisions at the fork in the road. So, We're going to turn to Genesis chapter 13 and see a fork in the road in the life of Abraham. I mean, things were clear to him, go to Canaan, but in the midst of that, there were some forks in the road. We're going to look at one of them right now. Genesis chapter 13, beginning with verse 5. Now, Lot and class participation time. Who's Lot? How's he related? The nephew of Abraham, right? You get an extra cookie out there, Jania. Now Lot, the the nephew of Abraham, was moving about with Abraham, and he also had flocks, herds, and tents. So uh, we remember from last week that when Abraham and Sarah left to move to Canaan, they brought their nephew along. Again, his name was Lot. And as time went on, Lot didn't just benefit from Abraham's flocks. He started to obtain his own. And so there was these two families almost that, that formed, almost like two businesses, two corporations, Lot's and Abraham's. Let's look to see what happened, verse 6. But the land couldn't support them while they stayed together, for their possessions, Abraham's and Lot's, were so great that they weren't able to stay together. And quarreling then arose between Abraham's herders and Lot's, the Canaanites and Perizzites were also taking up space in the land at that time. So let me explain what was going on here. So when people get rich or gain more money in America, what happens is your savings account or your bank account grows, right? There's more zeros that happen to come at the end of the number, whatever that might be. And it's pretty simple. You don't actually always even see it. It's just on a statement, 
in the time of Abraham, they didn't have money or banks. You know what they had? They had sheep, and they had goats, and they had camels. And when someone got rich, what happened wasn't just that there were zeros at the end of the number, but the sheep, the number of sheep, that's not a word, the number of sheep grew. And, and ah, I knew that wasn't a word. The number, number of goats grew. The number of camels grew. And so with that came the need for other growth, like more servants and more tents and more land for the animals to graze. And so Abraham and Lot, their, their income, their, their wealth grew so much that there wasn't room for both of them and the Canaanites and the Perizzites. So what are they going to do? Guess where Abraham's at? A fork in the road. Because there's going to be no verse that says, Abraham, here's what you're supposed to do. Abraham needs to figure out what to do. Next verse. So Abraham said to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herders and mine, for I love you. <laughs> We're close relatives. Verse 9. Is not the whole land before... Is, not the whole land before you. Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Now, this response or this decision seems pretty ordinary, doesn't it? It does show some generosity on the part of Abraham, but, but not really a very difficult solution to come to when you're thinking through the eyes of 21st century America. But this is not 21st century America. This is 4,000 years ago. And let me tell you something about that time. At that time, the patriarch of the family, whom Abraham was because his father Terah had died, he ruled the roost, all right? And whatever he wanted happened. And so 99.9% of the Abrahams of that time, the patriarchs, would have simply said, Lot, take a hike. Get out of here. By the, not to mention the fact that you got rich and wealthy because I'm your uncle and you, you, you gained because of me. But, but that's not what Abraham did here. He does something that was totally against cultural norms, which was to allow the youngster, the, the nephew, to make a decision. I want to dig into the why. You see, Abraham at this fork in the road was balancing three relationships. Here they are. The relationship with God, his relationship with his family, Lot, and his relationship with wealth. And you could fill this wealth in with other words, like um, worldly success or material goods. Whatever is of the world would be another synonym for what I'm trying to get at with the word wealth. And there's these three relationships that he had. And in order to make his decision, he recognized that not all three could take priority. It was just impossible. So what were his options? Option number one could have been, hey, Lot, how about you and I ditch this joint, and go to some area of the world or country where um, there's more green. And we can stick together and have land that will support all of our animals. And in the process, guess what would have happened? He would have kept his relationship with his family because 
him and Lot would have gotten along. He could have kept his relationship with his business because they would have found green land, but what would he have compromised? His relationship with God, and here's why. Because God had said, stay in Canaan. Don't leave this. This is where I want you. And so that would have compromised his relationship with God. Another option would have been one I mentioned earlier. Lot, see ya. And in that sort of decision, Abraham would have kept what relationship? Go back, Dean. He would have kept his relationship with his stuff because he would have had the green land needed to support his flocks. He kind of would have kept his relationship with God because he would have stayed in Canaan, but he really wouldn't have shown selfless love to Lot or his family. But what he would primarily compromise was the relationship with his family, with Lot. So Abraham didn't choose that. What he chose to do, even though it was against cultural norms, was to prioritize his relationship with God and family first, and then left the worldly stuff In this case, his business, his herds, he left those entrusted to God to take care of. Was there a chance that letting Lot choose the best land would have meant that the numbers of his goats and sheep and camels would have decreased? Yes. But was Abraham okay with that? Yes. Because when he prioritized his relationship with God, he knew that God would be coming with him and that God would be, as he had promised, blessing him and taking care of him. And so for Abraham, it's pretty simple. Here's the order of relationship. God, family, world. God, family, world. Now, before I talk a little more about this, let's take a look at how Lot responded to the same circumstance. We go to verse 10. So Lot then, after Abraham invited him to choose first, looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan toward Zoar to the east was well watered, just like the Garden of the Lord, like the Garden of Eden at one time, like the land of Egypt even. This was before the Lord destroyed the two cities called Sodom and Gomorrah. And so Lot looks around because they're on kind of a ridge and they can see for miles and miles. And he looks to uh, the north, I think that's that direction, right? He looks to the north and he sees brown, okay? Not good. He looks to the west and he sees brown. He looks to the south, brown. He looks to the east and cha-ching, baby, it's all green in that direction. That's where I'm going to pick. I'm going to go where the business can thrive, where there's green grass, well-watered. That's the direction that I'm going to go. Look at verse 11. Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan to the east, and set out that way. And so Abraham and Lot parted company. Abraham lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Verse 13. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. Dun, dun, dun. This is like a foreshadowing of stuff that we're not going to get to today, but I want to give you a little bit of a preview of what Lot was doing when he chose to go east. What Lot did was he chose the world or wealth or his business first. And that was what dictated his direction. 
even though it would compromise his relationship with God for two very important reasons. One, Sodom and Gomorrah were just outside of Canaan. Have you ever tried to follow God's will and just kind of compromise a little bit? Like, you know, I'm going to kind of do what God wants and kind of do what I want, and, you know, and maybe I'll be happy and hopefully God will be happy. And that's kind of what, kind of what Lot was doing. I'll be close to Canaan, just beyond it. And the other thing that compromises his relationship with God is the knowledge that the people of Sodom, where he was moving to, would not be a blessing to him, and they weren't. We're going to see all the trouble that these two towns caused for Lot and his family. In fact, some foreshadow- more fore- foreshadowing, uh, Lot's wife dies because of their proximity to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now let's get practical. There's a difference here, wasn't there? And I've been thinking all week about a way to help you remember this because I know you don't remember everything I say. Here's maybe the key or a way to remember it. What Lot did at the fork in the road, he looked out and then maybe looked up. When he had a tough decision to make, about life and about, you know, where to live. He was all concerned about circumstances that he could see. So he spent all of his time, or at least most of it, concentrating on looking out with very little as that we can tell of looking up. Abraham, on the other hand, what did he do? He looked up first. And he looked at what God's will for him would be or how his relationship with God would be most blessed in whatever decision was made. And then maybe he looked out, but he definitely looked up first. And so when you're at a fork in the road and need to make a decision and, you know, you think it's more important than taking a coin and flipping it, how about this, our next fill-in? Instead of looking out, my advice is to start by looking up. Instead of concentrating, as we often do, on purely or mostly the the earthly circumstances, how would it affect our decision if we made sure that we looked up? What what are some of the the questions that looking up asks at decision-making time? Well, the, the first one is just very easy. Is this decision within God's will or not? basically, is the alternative sin. (laughs) And if it is, that's the wrong direction. Um, How does this decision affect my relationship with God? If we move, or if I take that job, or if um, we put this extra thing on the calendar, will this be good or bad for my relationship, the most important relationship I have, my relationship with God? Or how does this decision affect my ability to prioritize that relationship with God? These are the types of questions we ask when we look up first before we look out. And, you know, I look around the room and I see a group of people that have always gotten this right every single time. And you look at me and I just want to let you know that I get it right all... No, no, no. We, we don't get this right all the time, do we? And, and, and we look at our calendars... It's like, 
holy cow, how do I fit church into this thing? Or how do I fit Bible study into here? Because weekends, they're a priority in the summer. We, I mean, we got some resting to do and some boating to do. And, you know, I mean, church, uh, I don't know. And by the way, you don't have to be in this building to focus on God on the weekend. You can take out dad's, the devotion book or the Bible and have a, a message with your kids on Sunday morning or read a section. There's, there's lots of ways to get to the same point. But where's God in the summers for a Minnesotan? <laughs> we don't always get this right, do we? I fail just as much as you do in different ways and in other ways. And, and I think things become clearer. I'm going to come back to the very beginning now of my message. Becomes clearer for us and easier. That up versus out. When we answer this question, what kind of journey am I on? I'm going to be here for 50 years, 80 years if I have the strength. What kind of journey am I on? What's the journey beneath the journey? Because my journey has taken me from Texas to Wisconsin to Minnesota, back to Wisconsin, back to Minnesota. I mean, but there's a journey beneath the journey. What kind of journey do I want to be on? And the absolute best journey we could be on is the one that goes a great lengths to protect the relationship we have with God, the most important relationship there is. And you may not think that today, but I guarantee you someday when you see or know that your life is only a couple days long, you're going to come back to it. So what if we spent our whole life thinking the way we would then? What's the journey beneath the journey for you? you know, it's, it's encouraging to me to see Abraham not always get this right either. I, I can relate to him better. Because actually at the end of chapter 12, the section we skipped over for today, <laughs> he was at the same fork in the road because there was a famine that came into the land and he could have stayed in Canaan and trusted God or run to a place that was greener. And at that point, guess what Abraham did? Good old hero of faith Abraham, he ran. And he prioritized something else other than God's will. And yet at the very end of this episode, I just take so much comfort in how God speaks to Abraham, sinful as he was, said to Abraham after Lot had parted, look around, they're on that same ridge that Lot was on, from where you are, to the north and the south, to the east, Cha-Ching, and to the west, all the land you see, I will someday give to you and your offspring forever. Verse 16. The promises and blessing keep coming. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land for I am giving it to you. And God does this thing that we need to hear over and over again. He takes sinful, messed up Abraham and he renews and restates to him the promise of blessing that was all about God and his grace and not about Abraham and his right decisions. You see, if, if you think this series 
is about the awesomeness of Abraham. Let's just get that out of your mind right now in week two. Yeah, we're going to see some things to emulate with Abraham, especially week 10. But this series is about the awesomeness of God's grace. And how he takes sinful people like Abraham and like you and like me, and he blesses us and he uses us in his story. It makes me think about Jesus, this, this whole episode. When, when Jesus was here on this earth, it's, it's recorded in Mark. This is about a month before he was going to die, maybe a little bit less. And Jesus and the disciples were up near the Galilee area, uh, quite a distance from Jerusalem. It was safe there. And in Mark chapter 10, it says that Jesus gets the disciples ready to go to Jerusalem. And the response of the disciples basically, are you nuts, Jesus? I mean, do you know what's going on? I mean, maybe you didn't know this, but people down there don't, act, don't necessarily like you, especially the people in charge. They want you dead, Jesus. And if Jesus had just looked out, guess where he would have gone? Back to Galilee. But it says that Jesus set his eyes, or he resolutely set his course and the disciples for Jerusalem. You know why? Because he wasn't looking out. Last fill-in. Jesus, instead of looking out, he looked at you. And when he saw me and you, the love and grace he had for us trumped whatever he would go through in Jerusalem. And when I think of Jesus' view, I mean, there's nothing better when I think about a Savior who, instead of looking out, looked at me, it makes me want to protect that relationship with a God who loved me so much and is the only real motivation for you and I at the fork in the road to look up instead of looking out, to look up and to prioritize that relationship above all else. And so I know this isn't easy. And I know I haven't made every decision in your life right now crystal clear. But I do believe God has helped you with a filter to think through things in maybe a different way. And now let me pray for you. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace seen through the life of a man of God named Abraham. But Lord, I've seen your grace in other ways. I, we see it in the ability to hear you call us your children, even though we don't deserve it. Lord, strengthen us with the knowledge of your grace and love today, and then help us to remember that, not only as we have confidence for eternity, but as we go out on the journey that's beneath the journey. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I